Hello? Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Mareva's here too. Hey there. Awesome. All right, let me just move the mic and then we're ready to go. Great. Ready? Ready. Hello, everyone. As we mentioned last time, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Helena's calling in from a recording studio in Chicago, which is why it will sound a little different than usual. We're wrapping up Breached, and we wanted to include an epilogue to share why we started this project and then feature one final interview, a conversation with Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard Law School, about the history of the social contract in America and why it can be a powerful concept to organize around. So to start us off, Lena, do you want to talk a little bit about why we did this podcast in the first place? Sure. So the idea for the podcast actually came from a book that we read called The Social Contract in America from Revolution to the Present Age, and it was written by Professor Mark Hulling at Brandeis University. And I had first picked up the book at the library over Thanksgiving break in 2016. I had uh, made the mistake of not going home for Thanksgiving during my first year of law school. And it was a few weeks after the presidential election, and I thought the book would sort of give some insight into where our country was at the moment and still is in many ways. And one of the things that I took away from the book is that social contract language or language that emphasizes shared rights and responsibilities was actually much more commonly invoked when full membership as an American meant being a white male property owner. And as membership expanded, instead of sort of expanding the umbrella of who could use language invoking a common social contract, use of that language actually just declined. And as a substitute, Americans increasingly relied on legal arguments to secure certain rights in this country. So without this common language, what you have left is procedure instead of common membership or, you know, binding commitments to one another. So with this in mind, we started the podcast to sort of experiment with how social contract language could be reintroduced in a much more inclusive way to really difficult topics that divide our country to, at the very least, sort of give people who have different points of view on a topic common language with which to engage in that debate. Yeah. So, for example, protest movements, why full membership in a community isn't just the ability to live somewhere or vote or have a job. It also means the ability to criticize and reshape that community or guns, um, asking when we talk about a right to safety, are we prioritizing the safety of the person behind the gun or the person in front of the gun? And, you know, what I really like about social contract language is that it's not the purview of just one political party. It's not a solely democratic or republican idea. And even people who aren't actually using the phrase explicitly are sort of engaging in the idea of a social contract when they talk about things being unfair. So when people talk about losing a job to automation or globalization or immigration, They're saying that the rules that they believed existed were broken or when people talk about being targeted or treated as less than for no reason but the color of their skin or their gender, their sexuality, their religion. They're saying that an American social contract that should extend the same rights to all members of its community, in fact, doesn't. Yeah, and there sort of seems to be a sense that talking about the economy or healthcare is incompatible with talking about identity and fair treatment. And I think that social contract language actually does both. It creates a language for people to debate the boundaries of their community and debate the rights that they want to ensure that they're entitled to and the responsibilities that they want to ensure others are bound by. 
Well, we could probably go on for hours talking about why and how the social contract and social contract language could add value, even if not solutions, to our debates. But we'll leave it at that. And while we could have included many more topics than the 10 that we ultimately discussed in this series, we hope that the perspectives that our guests shared have sparked and will continue to spark conversations about how we can think about our mutual rights and responsibilities in American society. One thing we hoped to do at some point in the series was explore the concept of the American social contract more holistically through a constitutional and historical lens. To do this, we decided to chat with Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard Law School. Both of us took constitutional law courses with him while working on the podcast, and we were struck by how many of our class discussions resonated with some of the issues we were grappling with on the show. He recently published a book on James Madison called The Three Lives of James Madison, Genius, Partisan, President. Madison is known as the father of the Constitution for the role he played in drafting the document and also authored the Bill of Rights. With those two documents in particular being texts that people point to when they are trying to determine rights and obligations, we asked Professor Feldman about Madison and the other framers' thinking. Did they think about what they were doing in social contract terms? First of all, thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's great that you guys have been doing it. Uh, I think the theme is super interesting. Let me dive right into Madison. It's a little bit tricky because as a background to what Madison and the other framers thought, you have to remember how they thought about states as opposed to how they thought about the national government that they were bringing to existence. For them, states were the original font of sovereign government. So they were all aware that when they made the revolution against Britain and then remade themselves through conventions, they knew that that, and they thought of that as having been a reimagining of their social contract. When they went national, they were much more ambivalent about the idea of creating a social contract. In many of our past episodes, we pointed to excerpts of the Declaration of Independence, or the U.S. Constitution, to indicate a potential source of an American social contract. However, one of the reasons that legal arguments and procedure are not enough to sustain a cohesive American community is that these texts, among others, don't in themselves constitute the entire American social contract. We asked Professor Feldman what he thought about the relationship between legal documents and the social contract. With that in mind, what is the status of the social contract today? Certainly it's evolved, and I don't think it includes primarily the things that are written or that lawyers study in the Constitution. Some of those are in there for sure, but most people don't know what's in the Constitution unless they take constitutional law, which is fine. So whatever's in the social contract isn't mostly what's in the Constitution. And so it includes some of the rights of the Constitution, and then I think it probably also includes some sense of economic possibility and option, and some basic principles of equality, perhaps not merely along lines of race or religion or sexual orientation or sex, but also along the line of economics. If you conceive the social contract in that broader way, I do think the social contract is, let's say, under attack. And I think there are many people who, for different reasons, experience themselves as feeling the social contract isn't really working itself out for them. And that ranges from people of color who are aware of their extraordinary vulnerability to police and other state actors 
and who I think very justifiably react to that by saying it can't really be a social contract if our persons and bodies are not respected in the way that white peoples are. I also think it's true from the standpoint of dispossessed, lower middle class and downwardly mobile people, um, many of them found in formerly industrialized white suburban or exurban communities, but by no means exclusively those folks who genuinely feel that the idea of economic opportunity that the United States has at least in theory always offered, or at least seemed to offer in the post-World War II era, isn't really available to them anymore. And there's some data to suggest that mobility is much reduced relative to what it once had been. So I think there's real frustration on that front too. And then I think there are rights-oriented, often elite liberal people who see the Trump presidency as in some way itself infringing on the social contract rather than seeing it as an outgrowth of different people in the public, different publics that experience themselves as in some way dispossessed. So yeah, and I think, you know, when the country is deeply divided the way it is politically, it's possible to say, well, what contract? You know, is this a contract that's being breached or is it a contract that even existed in the first place? I mean, I think another point just to, to add into this is some of the stronger critics of the social contract, especially who focus on race, but you could also tell the same story from the standpoint of economics, are also saying a version of the critique that says there never was a social contract. The whole thing is itself a myth based on the denial of, say, racial discrimination and its systematic economic effects, or even a denial of the way that real power has always been associated with money in our society. And I think that form of critique is more powerful right now than it's been in a long time. And that's, in some ways, the most devastating argument to the social compact or social contract theory, because it's saying, not only did you, did you make it up, not only is it just a heuristic, but it's a deceptive and dangerous and bad heuristic that makes it seem as though we all have basic access and we don't. And I think the thing about that criticism is if you respond by saying, oh, our social compact or our social contract is broken, let's fix it, that line of criticism would respond, no. Let's not go back to fixing the social compact. Let's acknowledge that it's completely broken. And then that raises a deep question of do we start from scratch and try to produce something that's consensus-based, or is that just impossible under American conditions? Professor Feldman advised the drafters of both Iraq and Tunisia's relatively new constitutions. In thinking about codified rights and responsibilities as they relate to the social contract, we asked him about that experience. Is the drafting of a new constitution an opportunity for a community to write a new social contract? I do think that in a post-dictatorial situation, many people did and do think that the time has come for a new social contract. And I think they thought of the constitution as really just the symbolic superstructure, and that what they were seeking is something deeper, some kind of deeper societal consensus. And this is in the backdrop of their realization that something had broken down. Now, what had broken down is a very complicated question because it raises the question of whether there is a social contract in a place like Saddam's Iraq or Ben Ali's Tunisia. It's very hard to say. I do think that people wanted in Iraq and wanted in Tunisia to reconstruct it. And here's where the fundamental problem arises, and it's about the difference between a constitution and a social contract. A constitution you can do. You can list rights, you can list governmental capacities, you can list obligations. You can have a section on values where you also talk about values, as most constitutions do. We have very little of that in the US Constitution. Most countries have a lot more, pages and pages in many cases. So that can be a kind of visible agreement. And then you can ratify it by some formal process. But a social contract assumes 
some kind of deep social agreement, acceptance, and legitimation. And that is a lot harder to achieve than just a document. You know, what you need is the society to talk about it and then take some collectively acceptable action, sometimes really difficult action. You know, a social contract doesn't mean that we're all happy all the time. It means that we agree on some procedures that will enable us to try to deliver the things that we need. And economic growth is a great example of that. You know, first we have to agree on what the right economic path is, and then we have to agree on where's the pain going to fall, because mm -hmm. almost all economic reform involves the distribution of some pain. Given how difficult it is to create and sustain a social contract, we wanted to know what Professor Feldman thought about its utility. Throughout the series, we've heard from people who have conceived of our boundaries on different levels, local, national, and even global. Where should we draw the boundaries of a social contract? And is a national social contract still useful or possible? To me, the state remains the best technology that we have to facilitate a basic structure of order and, when it works well, some basic structure of economic redistribution to try to facilitate the delivery of core social services, you know, infrastructure, food, healthcare, to people regardless of their capacity to pay for it. So I'm a big believer that the state is very good at those things relative to everyone else. It's not that the state is inherently good at it, but it's like what, you know, Churchill's supposed to have said about democracy, that it was the worst system of government except for all the others. The state is the worst form of social organization except for all the other ones. And so we still need the state for those things. And for the state to function that way, there should be a basic social contract for the purposes of the state. And I do think we need something like that. And if we don't have something like that, it becomes very hard for the state to function, function legitimately and function effectively. And when it doesn't, bad stuff can happen. I just don't want that to be the end of the story. I then think we should have ways of thinking about a global community and our obligations and responsibilities to others. And if those tend to issue in some social contractarian way of thinking, that's okay, especially if it's a heuristic device. You know, especially if we act, ask ourselves, well, what do we owe people who live elsewhere in the world and are honest about what we do owe them and maybe what we don't owe them? Ditto for our local communities, ditto for online communities. We should be figuring out what those communities are for, what they do well, and if we think about obligations that we have in those communities in terms of a mutually obligatory contract, and it's helpful to us to do so, that's awesome. So I guess what I'm saying is, I think of both the conceptual structures and the real structures as tools. Uh, the state's a tool. The idea of the social contract, the heuristic of the social contract is a tool. And where it's useful in clarifying our moral duties, our moral obligations, and our sense of commonality, it's awesome, and we should continue to use it. Where it goes awry, we shouldn't think, oh my goodness, you know, we have to preserve it at all costs. We should be willing to say, it doesn't really work here. It doesn't really fit these circumstances. There's a reason you're focusing on it. It is one of the most powerful organizing metaphors that we have globally for talking about what we owe each other. And that's really important. It's good that you did it. We want to thank everyone who has listened to the podcast over the past few months, shared it with their friends, and sent us feedback and suggestions. And we'd also like to extend our sincere gratitude to the 40 guests that took a chance on us and agreed to participate in this experiment of a podcast. And a huge, huge thanks to Marie Valindo, our producer and editor, whose consistent feedback, to be honest, was to include some kind of humor or personality in our episodes, uh, which if you're a regular listener, you will know that this advice was summarily ignored. Great footage for the blooper reel, though. <laughs> um, and thank you to Annie Swanson-Nystrom for our artwork. 
To access all of our past episodes, you can find us on iTunes or at www.breachedpodcast.org. I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. I'm Marie Valindo. And I'm Jyoti Jastrasaria. And this is Breached. What do you think? We good? Happy, Mareva? I think we're good. Perfect. Okay, well, I'll get this file from Connie, and I should be able to send it uh, this afternoon, so. Okay, great. We're going to clean up, and then I'm going to call you on your cell in a little bit. Talk soon. Bye, guys. Bye.